Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine. There have been more appalling discoveries found in Kyiv suburb of Bucha, and a growing number of world leaders accuse Russian forces of committing war crimes. Please be warned of disturbing images ahead. In the basement, CNN teams witnessed the removal of five victims who appear to have been tortured and then executed, according to a Ukrainian official. CNN cannot independently verify those claims. But as the number of confirmed deaths in Bucha exceed 300, President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning we've not yet seen the worst. There is already information that the number of victims of the occupiers may be even higher in Borodyanka and some other liberated cities. In many villages of the liberated districts of the Kiev, Chernihiv, and Sumy regions, the occupiers did things that the locals had not seen even during the Nazi occupation 80 years ago. President Zelensky is also now casting doubt on talks with President Putin accusing him of committing genocide in Ukraine. In the next hour, he's expected to address the UN Security Council for the first time since the invasion began 41 days ago. Russia, a permanent member of the council, continues to claim the videos from Bucha are fake, yet satellite imagery suggests otherwise. You can see that there are areas in this March 18th satellite image that match the locations of victims seen in the video. The international outrage gathers pace with EU finance ministers meeting today to discuss more sanctions on Russia, including a phase out of coal imports. The EU also announcing a joint investigation with Ukraine into alleged Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity. And in the last hour, more condemnation coming from the NATO Secretary General. This is unbearable brutality that Europe has not witnessed in many decades. Targeting and murdering civilians is a war crime. All the facts must be established and all those responsible for these atrocities must be brought to justice. More now from CNN's Fred Pleiken in Boucher. And another warning, you're about to see disturbing graphic images showing what the Russian troops left behind. Ukrainian authorities in Bucha lead us into a basement they call a Russian execution chamber. It's a gruesome scene. Five bodies, their hands tied behind their backs, shot. The bullet casings collected by Ukrainian police. Pockmarks from bullets in the walls. The Ukrainians say these men were killed when Russian forces used this compound as a military base while occupying Bucha. 
an advisor to Ukraine's interior minister not even trying to conceal his anger. After the liberation of Bucha, five corpses of civilians were found here, he says, with their hands tied behind their backs. They were shot in the head and in the chest. They were tortured before. Even the body collectors find it hard to keep their composure. Vladislav Minchenko is usually a painter. Now he collects the dead left behind after Russian forces retreated from Bucha. This is not what we learned in school, he says. Do you see my hands? Hundreds, hundreds of dead. Hundreds, not dozens. The Kremlin has denied Russia was behind any atrocities in Bucha. Now, the Russians say the notion of their troops having killed civilians is all fake news and propaganda, but it does seem clear that they were here. That looks like a sort of foxhole position, and over there they seem to have dug in a tank. On the outer wall, the letter V, a symbol that Russian forces painted on their vehicles before invading this part of Ukraine. Now, a lot of Russian military hardware lies destroyed in the streets of Bucha and other towns around Kiev, as the Ukrainians made a stand and prevented Vladimir Putin's army from entering the capital city. Images published shortly after Russian forces left Bucha show many corpses lying in the streets. Some bodies had their hands tied behind their backs. President Biden calls what happened here a war crime. While visiting Bucha, Ukraine's president vowed to bring those behind the violence against civilians to justice. These are war crimes, he says, and they will be recognized by the world as genocide. You are here and you can see what happened. We know that thousands of people were killed and tortured, teared limbs, raped women and killed children. And still, the dead keep piling up. Many lay in this mass grave behind the main church in Bucha. Local authorities tell us around 150 people are buried here, but no one knows the exact number. And here, too, the scenes are tragic. <laughs> Vladimir has been searching for his younger brother, Dimitri. Now he's convinced Dimitri lies here, even though he can't be 100% sure. The neighbor accompanying him has strong words for the Russians. Why do you hate Ukraine so much, she says. Since the 1930s, you've been abusing Ukraine. You just wanted to destroy us. You wanted us gone. But we will be. Everything will be okay. I believe it. But more corpses are already on the way. At the end of the day, we meet Vladislav and the body collectors again. Another nine bodies found in this tour alone. And it's unlikely they'll be the last. For Pleitkin, CNN, Bucha, Ukraine. Echoing President Zelensky, Ukraine's deputy prime minister told my colleague Brianna Keeler that civilian casualties could be even worse in other locations. Borodanka was also fully occupied for a while and we had no access. Uh, we could not see what was happening there. Therefore, we are inviting journalists, criminal experts and anybody with um, relevant experience to come and witness what we will discover in Borodanka because we know that uh, the animals in military uniform, there's no other way to call them, were uh, torturing women and children. Phil Black joins us live now from Lviv. Phil, there's a dual fear here. The first 
is that this is just the beginning of the atrocities that have found us more areas of freedom for Russian troops. And the second and very valid fear here is President Zelensky suggested that it compromises the ability to reach some kind of resolution, even a ceasefire. Yeah, and perhaps understandably, uh, Julia, even before the revelations of recent days, there was a very strong feeling among the Ukrainians, and it points to why the talks were already tense and difficult, and that's because they strongly believed they'd done nothing wrong, that they had been attacked uh, in an unwarranted way, that the victims of Russian aggression, aggression that has resulted in the destruction of cities, the displacement of millions of people, tremendous human suffering. And so, to paraphrase their position, they were unwilling to, to make uh, concessions because, well, why should we reward Russia's bad behaviour by giving them some of our territory? Now, add to that very strongly held view the emotions that inevitably come with what Ukrainians have learnt about how some of their fellow citizens were clearly treated while under Russian uh, occupation. I think you get a sense of that feeling through watching uh, Volodymyr Zelensky walking through Bucha, inspecting, seeing some of what the Russians left behind. And so, yes, perhaps no surprise that he would respond to these revelations, to what he saw, by expressing uh, some doubt about how you can possibly then negotiate with a partner that he believes was responsible for the murder and mutilation and torture of so many of his fellow citizens. Take a listen now to some of what Zelensky said while he was in Bucha yesterday. The longer the Russian Federation delays the meetings, the worse it will be for them and for this war. Every day when our troops are liberating occupied territories, you can see what is happening here. It's very difficult to negotiate when you see what they have done here. Every day we find people in barrels, strangled, tortured in the basements. So I think if they have any brains left, they should think faster. So it's worth remembering that it was only last week that some Ukrainian officials close to the negotiating process were saying real progress was being made that, uh, on some key sticking points. And they felt that the possibility of a meeting between Zelensky and Putin was, was a very real one. But today Zelensky has said that that feels pretty unlikely uh, unless Russia were to accept full responsibility for the war crimes committed in this country. Mm, that's the difficulty and, and the challenges trying to rescue those that are trapped in some of the worst affected areas continues. I believe there's been another failed attempt to get people out of Mariupol, Phil. Yeah, so people are leaving Mariupol, a few thousand a day mostly when the humanitarian corridors are able to open. But that means there are still thought to be well in excess of 100,000 people trapped in this surrounded cut-off city that has been under bombardment for, for well over four weeks uh, now with little food, water, electricity and, and so forth. And the key point is, is that while some people are getting out, nothing is getting in. The International Committee for the Red Cross has been trying to get in for some days now with aid and supplies and also escorting in empty buses to get larger numbers of people out. Uh, and once again, they have been prevented from doing so, despite what the Ukrainian government says was agreement and assurances uh, from Russian leadership, Julia. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. OK, coming up, Ukraine says Western sanctions against Putin's Russia are strong, but not strong enough. I'll speak to an economic advisor to President Zelensky on how to force Russian concessions at the negotiating table. That's next. Stay with us.
EU finance ministers who've been shocked by the atrocities in Boucher are meeting today to discuss tougher new sanctions against Russia. The US Treasury also moving to restrict Russia's ability to make debt repayments using cash reserves that have been frozen in US bank accounts. They have been able to do that so far. That means Russia will have to use the reserves it still has access to at home or the money it gets from energy payments. John Harwood joins us now. John, this was interesting, very interesting to me when I, I read the details from the Treasury last night. They're basically seemingly forcing Russia to choose. Either you burn down the reserves that you have remaining in, the United, in, uh, in Russia, you use some of the cash that you're getting from energy repayments, or you default on your international debt. And either way, it restricts some of the money that can be used for the war effort, surely, too. Exactly. And what the United States and the allies need to do, especially as these horrific atrocities come into focus, is cut off financial escape routes for Russia. Uh, Clearly, that was done uh, at the beginning as uh, sanctions have gradually uh, ramped up. Sanctions against larger banks, uh, uh, barring access to the SWIFT payment system. Uh, freezing the uh, reserve, Federal Reserve uh, Bank of Russia from accessing all those dollar reserves they built up. Uh, but they had been letting through some of these debt payments uh, to uh, go using foreign reserves. Now uh, the, they're increasing pressure uh, on the allies to do more. Uh, this is one of those steps. It's not the ultimate step. The ultimate step, of course, Julia, is going to be, as you know, uh, cutting off the purchase of Russian oil and gas. That has blowback on Europe. It has blowback on the United States. It has blowback on the world economy. The question is, how much longer can they resist that final step as the pressure mounts to do more against Russia? Mm, it's, uh, they're all great questions. Is there blowback, John, on the United States itself, too, with the, the power that they're wielding with the U.S. dollar? There are... We could call them fairer weather friends all over the world, the Middle East, Asia, for example, that are getting a powerful warning at this moment, perhaps about the need to diversify in the future away from the U.S. dollar. Sure, there will be cost uh, and other countries will figure out paths to uh, avoid the United States for the reason that you mentioned. At the same time, uh, the United States and allies will figure out ways to get by without some of the commerce that they're Uh, blocking off. Uh, Big choices ahead for China as they watch what the United States is doing and the severity of those responses. It's uh, notable that in the couple of weeks since uh, President Biden had that uh, uh, long phone call with President Xi warning not to assist Russia financially or militarily in the war or face uh, consequences yourself, we haven't seen uh, uh, major action on the part of China. And so that warning uh, appears, at least for now, to have been heeded in Beijing. For now, John Howard, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the world must brace for more scenes of horror like those we're seeing from the city of Busha. Zelensky, who witnessed firsthand the atrocities carried out on innocent civilians in Busha yesterday, is now questioning whether he can negotiate directly with President Putin, who he accuses of genocide. Busha has put pressure on the West to increase sanctions on Russia too, as John was just describing. The U.S. Treasury announcing new restrictions on Russia's ability to service its foreign debt, as John was just saying. EU finance ministers meeting today, too, to consider new energy sanctions on Russia. Well, one advisor to the Ukrainian president has singled out major German firms like Bayer, Metro and Henkel, who are still operating in Russia. 
Alexander Rodyansky is also calling for more sanctions on Russian banks, and he joins us now. Alexander, great to have you with us on the show. We can talk about more sanctions, but I know you've spoken to President Zelensky directly about the atrocities in Busha, and I just wanted to get more detail from you about the reaction and the complications for potential peace negotiations too. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. So that's quite right. Obviously, what's happening in Bucha and other cities in Ukraine that have been occupied is, you know, as horrible, horrendous and inhumane as it can possibly get. It certainly complicates our peace talks and any potential negotiations with this regime. Um, but we have to give it a try as we, you know, as we were doing before. So um, let's see what happens. But sanctions on Russia, as you correctly pointed out, have to be increased. Pressure has to increase. There is no way the world can forget or ignore what's happening. You've also said yourself, Alexander, that you believe what we're seeing in cities like Boucher is punishment, Russia's punishment for their failures to take places like Kiev. That's exactly right. So this is not just, you know, the psychology of genocide, which has been studied and documented before during the Second World War, for example. This is more than that. This is certainly their revenge for defeat, for their failure of capturing Kiev and other big cities in the north. And so that's what that's their nature. They're revealing their true nature by these sorts of acts. They can't obviously get to our military, so they're taking it all out on our civilians. And that just shows you the true face of what we're dealing with. You know, the government has said they don't accept Russia taking any land in, in future negotiations, and that includes the formal acceptance of the loss of Crimea to Russia too, which obviously the government and, and the world still recognizes, most of the world still recognizes as Ukrainian. Where does this end, Alexander? Well, it ends in our victory, but before we reach that point, we have to have maximum support militarily. That means giving us all the weapons that we need at this point. We have more than enough people who are willing to find fight against these against this army and these barbarians but we need the equipment um that's actually the reverse from what's happening in russia they having they have the equipment but they don't have the morale or the people who are willing to do anything uh, so we need the equipment we need maximum military support we need the capabilities to defend our airspace and we need economic sanctions on this regime such that it cannot finance the war we have to bring this war machine to an end to a stop and that will happen through crippling sanctions on Russia's regime, on their ability to raise financing, to sell oil and gas to Europe, and so on. And to your point, those discussions about further sanctions do often coalesce around the prospect of Europeans buying oil and gas and the need to restrict that dramatically. You've said on, on Twitter that you've openly discussed the prospect of an embargo on Russian oil and a tax on Russian gas directly with the German government. What was their response? So yes, we've been speaking to officials in Europe, in Germany in particular. Um, there is obviously a hesitancy here in Germany um, in terms of introducing an embargo you know, in the short run on oil uh, and gas imports from Russia. So the solution there might be a stepwise embargo where first oil is sanctioned or prohibited in terms of importing to, to the EU. So that would be easier because oil is easier to substitute and it can come from the Middle East, for example. There are ports in the north of Germany, and there's this infrastructure for transportation and importing. That's harder to do with gas. And so at least we could introduce, or Europe could introduce, a stepwise embargo where first oil is prohibited, 
and then gas over time. Uh, so that's realistic, more realistic than a full-scale embargo, unfortunately, and that would already go a long way in preventing Russian financing for the war. And, and how quickly could that be done, Alexander? And I should explain to my viewers, you were born in Kyiv, but you grew up in Germany, you're an economist, so you have a strong sense of, of the economics I would argue, of both countries too. So if we're talking about Germany specifically, which has uh, such a vulnerability here because of its requirements of, of Russian energy supplies, um, could that be done very quickly, even if they introduced a cushion perhaps for lower income people to help support them dealing with the higher energy costs? Yes, so that's right. So Germany has made itself very dependent on energy imports from Russia. That has been a mistake, a terrible mistake policy mistake over the years. But now Germany is in that situation. It's obviously not easy to get out of it, but it's possible to do. As I said, a stepwise embargo starting with oil is feasible. Oil is easier to substitute away, and that could be done relatively soon. Gas is a harder uh, proposition. It's harder to implement. There is no infrastructure for importing gas from, you know, other terminals or LNG gas in Germany, there's no LNG terminals in Germany actually. So that's a bit harder to do, but you could already start, for example, taxing gas imports from Russia. That will you know, d diminish the profits that they're getting over there and diminish their capabilities to finance the war going forward. But we're hoping that it's realistic. There are studies that show quite serious scientific you know, and practical studies now that show that actually it's probably not as catastrophic as many imagine in the industry, but of course there's a lot of lobbying on the part of the industry yeah. for this not to happen. And we need to be clear about what it is. It's lobbying, it's just that. I was gonna ask you that specifically actually, whether you think this is a government decision and a cost to consumer and the politics of that, or it is the power of the industry itself to prevent further restrictions. And I'm talking about the oil and gas industry themselves. And I think you're answering the question for me. That's right. Well, of course, there's, you know, le legitimate concerns on the part of the government. And there's, of course, some uncertainty around these estimates. You can't say precisely what would happen to employment, what would happen to separate industries. But you can still be relatively sure that this would be manageable. And all the hysteria around this, to a large extent, comes from the industry, comes from certain enterprises in Germany also that fear that they would have to make adjustments very, very quickly and that it would be costly for them. But that doesn't mean that it's infeasible. No, and should at least be considered. Um, Alexander, clearly the war continues, but... I know you as an economic advisor to the president are considering the future and rebuilding after this war. And we recently spoke to the finance minister directly and, and we were talking about the economy ministry's estimates of a $500 billion worth of, of potential costs. But he admitted at that time it, it could be far greater. Should we t be talking about bigger sums than $500 billion, perhaps even a trillion dollars, double that, and a Marshall Plan of some kind to tackle rebuilding. Absolutely, that's what. It, that's exactly what we're thinking about. I think I've lost him there, but interesting to know that a Marshall Plan is being discussed. Um, if we can get him back, we will go back to him. But otherwise, I will thank. Alexander Rodnyansky there, the advisor to the Ukrainian president and assistant professor of economics at Cambridge University. Okay, coming up, facial recognition technology, not only as a weapon, but as a way of reuniting families with lost ones, no matter whose side they're on. The CEO of Clearview AI, 
up next. Stay with us. Welcome back. A very human response to the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Dozens of volunteers still standing by, ready to help the nearly two and a half million refugees that have now crossed from devastation into safety. Sam Abdelaziz joins us now from Poland. Sam, I believe you're joined by someone who's helping out there. Absolutely, Julius. So I'm right at the pedestrian crossing. And what you have to know is that men of fighting age are not allowed to leave Ukraine. That means many times the pe- people fleeing are just women and children, just the female members of the family. And that means there's an additional layer of vulnerability. And one of the volunteers that these women and children might meet first is Ayala. Uh, I know you have a few tents that you've set up here to greet women and children, particularly. Could you show me what you have here? Yes, uh, we have here uh, three tents. We have uh, two clinics. One of them is uh, up and one of them is the, this green tent. Mm-hmm. It's clinic which contains uh, doctors and nurses 24-7. And we also have this uh, big white tent. It's for women and children. Yeah. Because uh, I'm here with SSF organization and we have been here since the breakout of the war. It's 40 days. When we start here, there is nothing here. So we realize that treat people medically, it's not enough because they live in the clinic and then what? They have no other place. So you want to give more than just medical care. You want to give emotional support, mental support. We want to give them hope. We want to give them a safe spot for them after everything they've been through. And talk to me about the need that you're seeing. There's now 2.5 million refugees in Poland. What is the need that you're seeing? Uh, They need, I will answer it in two parts, please. Um, They need us. They need us to support them, to give them a safe spot and hope and, and hug and hand and whatever they need. I need help. I need whatever people can give me. I need money. I need medical supplies. I need medication. I need whatever I can get to keep doing what I'm doing So you need people to help you help them? Exactly. I couldn't pronounce it better than you Thank you so much for explaining all of that. And Julia, I mean, we continue to see, I'm just going to step over here so that you could just see people continuing to flow. I mean, this is a constant flow of people that you are seeing coming across the border. They have fled with nothing but what they can carry in their hands. That means they need everything, Julia, diapers and food and care, but also mental support and a future, a plan. Women like Alia, that's what they're here for. Yeah, and it's good to see it so organized, Salma, as well. And even just seeing someone like that with a big smile on their face, I think, after all the trauma is um, something special. You're doing a great job. Thank you for being there. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you for that. Okay, now the Ukrainian government is now using facial recognition in the war against Russia. The country's vice prime minister says the technology is being provided by New York-based startup Clearview AI. The partnership came after Clearview's CEO sent a letter to Kyiv offering its tech for free. The tech could be used to help reunite families in the growing refugee crisis too. Right now, Ukraine says it's being used to identify Russian soldiers killed during the war and then to inform their families. Clearview says it has collected more than 2 billion images from Russia's social media network. The co-founder and CEO of Clearview AI, Juan Ton, that joins us now. Juan, great to have you with us. You're allowing 
the Ukrainian government, I believe, to use your product free of charge. Just talk us through the decision to contact them and say, hey, our technology can help. Hi, Julia. Uh, thanks for having me on your show, uh, even though it's a really terrible time. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so what happened was one of our uh, advisors and lawyers on advisory board, Lee Walowski, he um, uh, was actually meeting with the ambassador to the Ukraine, and I was trying to find a way, uh, and we were trying to find a way to help in this terrible situation. Uh, so we wrote this letter, and somehow it got to the right person. They reached out to us, and, um, and we set them up uh, about 21 days ago, 23 days ago, um, with the Clearview AI facial recognition technology. But the real motivation behind this was just seeing all the images come out and the videos of all the horrific um, uh, crimes that are going on. And we thought that would be able to help in many ways to help identify and verify uh, people who've been uh, deceased, victims of war, uh, potential infiltrators. It could be all helpful with fighting misinformation and also with family reunification. Yeah, the refugees, of course, if people have got separated. I mean, to your point, there is there are many potential uses here. But what the Ukrainian government said, and I, and I mentioned that, was that they want to allow Russian families to reclaim loved ones that fought and died in, in Ukraine and perhaps have been left behind. Um, just explain how it works so our audience understands. And are you providing training for the, for the Ukrainians as well, because I think one of the fears is perhaps that, that mistakes happen, it's misused, you know the, the criticisms well. Are you providing training? Yes, uh, I've been training a lot of them and so has our team on how to use the facial recognition technology to uh, you know, help identify and verify people. Uh, so the way it works, it's like a search engine. So it searches over 20 billion public photos from the internet um, when you upload a photo to Clearview AI. And so in that process, uh, even if uh, a face is off angle or with glasses, with a beard, and even with uh, facial damage, uh, if they're deceased, uh, it's still able to identify uh, publicly available information. Just so happens that we have over 2 billion images from different Russian social networks. And when I started uh, doing the first demonstration for them in training, they would send me photos through email. I, I would Send them, put them through the system and they could find them on like Vekontate um, in, in Russian uniform. So um, it's been very helpful uh, for identification and verification of um, uh, deceased people or even just um, verifying people at checkpoints. People might not have identification or they might have identification anyway. That extra piece of verification uh, can make all the difference. I, you mentioned something there, and I, I don't want to dwell on it, but I think it is quite poignant for some of the images that we've been showing and the atrocities that some of CNN's reporters have witnessed, and that is, according to the Ukrainians, people that have been tortured and then executed. Mm -hmm. Were you just saying there that if there's facial damage, people can still be identified? Yeah, it's correct. Um, I've seen uh, some of the images. They're um, horrific. Um, but talking to some of the people in the Ukrainian government who use our software, they've been able to make uh, multiple identifications. The latest report I've heard is now 582, uh, you know, deceased people have been identified uh, using uh, facial recognition technology. So in a situation where you don't have DNA or fingerprints, um, it can be very, uh, very helpful. So um, just seeing uh, these images is, um, uh, you know, really disturbing. But uh, nevertheless, the technology is able to work uh, regardless and still uh, make identifications.
yeah, and that's over 500 families who at least have some clarity on where their missing loved ones are and what's happened to them, um, as heartbreaking as it is. I think one of the other tools that I've read about it being used for as well is perhaps discrediting stories or accusations of fake news. I, I saw a recent example where Russia suggested that a prisoner of war was actually a, a Ukrainian nationalist. And this technology was used to say, look, actually, we can identify this person on social media and he's not Ukrainian. Yeah, so there's a lot of you know accusations out there saying that you know these people um, are actors or this isn't really happening, and um, it's quite ludicrous. But nevertheless, it's a you know they're able to use the technology to identify the real people uh, in the different photos and and debunk it in a very quick and efficient manner. Um, the other thing is just talking to the Ukrainians every day. I'm on Zoom with the you know different. A set of people either training them and talking to them. They're the most um, bravest, motivated people I've seen. I, I thought initially I was expecting them to be, you know, a little down, but I've never seen anyone, um, so many people so motivated to fight. So I, I just want to let, you know, say that they're very impressed and um, they're very brave people. I think we're all in awe of the fight and spirit, um, Juan. Let's talk about Russia and Russia mm -hmm. potentially using this technology too. And the risk perhaps of, of state actors, cyber attacks. How are you protecting against that? And what decisions have you made with regards the Russian government also getting access to your technology? So uh, we're not giving the access to our technology to the Russian government, um, just in Ukraine. So it's pretty clear to us as a company uh, that we need to help the Ukrainians in their situations. They're defending themselves really against an invasion. Um, and uh, anything we can do to help them there is uh, good. Our technology is deployed as a cloud-based service. So we have the ability to uh, give access and also revoke access uh, to different uh, customers. In this case, it's uh, you know really clear to us um, and really important to us that they're able to have every tool they can have uh, to help because they're you know outnumbered in some ways. And, um, but again, they're very brave. Uh, and, and fighting for their lives. And uh, Juan, I have to ask, because obviously you're getting all sorts of pushback from social media companies, from tech, big technology companies about the use of images. You're being criticized over privacy concerns. You're being criticized over perhaps misidentifying individuals. Um, do you think mm -hmm. what you're doing here will help change the narrative? Because there will be those that are saying you're you're being opportunistic in providing this and, and getting good PR. So I just want to give you an opportunity to to respond to that because I know that criticism will sure, come. Sure. Yeah. There's nothing opportunistic about this. We really care about the situation. I think uh, facial recognition is still a new technology and very much misunderstood, uh, including Clearview AI. And we've seen large events like uh, the Capitol riots on January 6th the FBI could make over 100 identifications of people who stormed the Capitol. Those kind of events have uh, led people to think differently about the technology. And it really is a safe technology. Uh, there's been no misidentifications uh, or wrongful arrests due to our technology at all. Um, and it really has um, surpassed uh, the human eye in terms of accuracy. So I think, you know, in this Ukrainian situation, again, over 582, that's the last number, uh, deceased people that were able to be identified 
with the technology and I get emails from them and uh, you know messages from them every day saying thank you so much for your support thanks for giving us this technology and I think that it's just been amazing to see it happen so quickly there's been uh, now five government agencies uh, onboarded and trained and used it hundreds of people in the Ukraine um, and thousands of searches and plenty of success stories so I think the results uh, speak for themselves. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with technology. It's the use of technology that can be the problem. And if you have a problem with that use, you regulate it. Um, yeah, from we're us, open to regulation. Yeah. You know, this is the best you know, and highest purpose of the technology is to help fight crime. And this has uh, been a great honor to be able to help them in this terrible situation. Yeah, at this moment, from us and from the 582 families so far that know what happened to their loved ones, we thank you for your help. Want on that, the CEO of Clairview, I, I, thank you. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Energy volatility back on the front burner across global markets today. All prices are higher and coal is currently up more than 11% as the EU discusses a ban on Russian coal imports. Just to be clear, coal is up more than 130% over the past year alone. Global stock markets, as you would expect, cautious once again today as NATO Secretary General says the Ukraine war has entered a dangerous new phase. He says Russia wants to capture the entire Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainian government, of course, saying they won't accept one inch of territorial loss. U.S. tech stocks currently lower for the first time in three days. Twitter, however, is the exception. The social media giant rallying for a second straight day on word that Elon Musk will take a seat on the company's board of directors. This after his massive investment in the company was disclosed on Monday's session. Under the agreement, Musk has agreed to buy up to no more than 14.9% of Twitter while sitting on the board. He currently owns 9.2% according to that filing. Now he says he will work to make what he calls significant improvements to the service. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Authorities in Shanghai will continue to enforce a days-long COVID lockdown, even after testing most of the city. Officials say they still need to review the results, conduct a few more tests and analyse the broader situation. On Monday, the city reported more than 13,000 new cases, while China confirmed 16,000 nationwide. Both are new daily records. Dozens of Sri Lankan MPs have left the president's coalition government amid continued mass protests and a mounting economic crisis. This means the government does not have the necessary votes to pass legislation. Citizens are facing severe food and water shortages, crippling inflation and power outages. Okay, coming up, we're awaiting President Zelensky's speech to the United Nations Security Council. A preview of that speech up next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. One way of providing continuity and stability in the lives of refugees, many of whom are children, is education. Not easy when millions of people are flooding into your country, but as Kong La reports, Poland is finding a way to tackle the problem. To learn the full scope of war, take a seat in Ms. Magda's classroom. She's a Polish teacher using Google Translate to communicate in Ukrainian with her new foreign students. Her class has grown by 40% this month with new children 
who've just fled the only home they've ever known. You're translating on the internet as you teach. Uh, yes, because I know only Polish language. How important is it for you as a teacher to help these kids? To jest dla mnie bardzo ważne, very important, <laughs> bardzo ważne. Primary School 157 with bilingual classes has welcomed every new refugee. Classes are more cramped, but these public school students don't complain because they feel they already know the strangers sitting next to them. Well, a lot of kids have come to our school and some of them have told us stories about what's happened. They've left people that they love behind. Edward Szyszewski is 13 years old, a Polish student, seeing the influx of war survivors come through his school doors. The more we take in, the better we're doing. The better? Yes. So you don't mind that the no. rooms are crowded? No. It's for a good cause. So these are all Polish kids. <laughs> Eva Rexgrenat is the vice director. That's hard. She feels for every child in the building and only wishes she could do more. Especially when I see people helping. And I don't know. We can help in only small part. Warsaw's mayor tells us the strain on his city schools is enormous. The 100,000 additional refugee children in Poland's capital need an education. It's an increase of 30 percent just this last month. Nazar Samodenko is 13. He's from Kiev. Your mom is here. Yes. Um, your father? No. He stayed in Ukraine. Nazar's father is a minister helping fight in the war. It took a week for Nazar to escape Ukraine with his mother. School offers the structure of a life he's lost. Your favorite subject is? Math. Math. You like math? Yes. Is it easier being around other Ukrainian kids? Yes, he says. We can talk. They understand. Of the four million refugees fleeing Ukraine, half are children, paying the price of adult sins. How hard is it for kids your age to live through this? I think it's practically impossible to go through this. It's just mind-boggling how this could happen to someone that young. The school told us they're not experts in dealing with war trauma, and there just isn't a system yet in place to deal with these kids who are coming into the school. Despite the strain, they say not one single child will be turned away. Kyungla, CNN, Warsaw, Poland. Incredible. They're managing as best they can. Those are the people, though, that have made it to safety. What of those that are left behind? NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warning more civilian casualties could be found in other Ukrainian towns after Bucha. I'm afraid that we will see more. That we will see more examples of the killing of civilians, more examples of atrocities, and more examples of uh, uh, targeting uh, killing of civilians, which actually are war crimes. This is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky set to address the UN Security Council in just a few moments' time. He visited Bucha yesterday. Every day when our troops are liberating occupied territories, you can see what is happening here. 
It's very difficult to negotiate when you see what they have done here. Every day we find people in barrels, strangled, tortured in the basements. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, it's unimaginable. He's accused Vladimir Putin of, of genocide. We can talk about the UN Security Council afterwards, but if we're looking towards some kind of peace negotiations, even ceasefire negotiations, how does President Zelensky arguably negotiate with someone he views now as a war crime, a war criminal guilty of genocide? I think what we've seen from President Zelensky so far is a practicality, a practicality that uh, that he couldn't get uh, Ukraine into NATO and an acceptance of that, a calculation that he was going to have to compromise on his aims for Ukraine in order to keep uh, NATO's military support, the EU's financial support, the United States support in all of this. So he has proven himself to be practical. What he has said about a, a sort of final peace deal is very clearly that Russian forces must pull back to pre-February 23rd positions, that is, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I asked the UN Sec- the NATO Secretary General here about that and about uh, NATO's position. Would they accept uh, if Russian forces remained inside or beyond those lines uh, of the uh, pre-invasion? His answer gave us, I think, a lot of clues as to how Zelensky can get to uh, a practical negotiation ultimately um, with President Putin, despite President Putin being accused of war crimes. And that is NATO's position is continued to give uh, Ukraine the maximum military support that it feels that it can without escalating the war to give Zelensky the strongest position at the negotiating table. And I think Zelensky's past performance until now has indicated that he is prepared to be practical, but he has set a very high bar and there's no indication of who can force uh, Putin to pull his troops out of uh, out of Ukraine. That is very unclear. A war crimes charge that sticks may help on paper, but it may not bring about the kind of peace that actually Zelensky really wants. Yeah, and that's a critical point. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 